I speak to you in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. For much of this year, and especially throughout the summer, if you've been paying attention to our gospel readings, you will have noticed that we are making our way through the Gospel of Matthew pretty much in order. And as we've been doing so, I've been making an attempt to sort of trace a rough sketch of an outline for the teaching of Matthew in order. And one of the themes that stands out to me strongly has been the theme of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven on some occasions. And I'll just share with you my rough outline. In the opening chapters 1 through 4, Matthew presents to us the, a picture of the Old Testament fulfillment of the kingdom in the arrival of the king himself on the scene of world history, Jesus. Chapters 5 through 7 transition to focus more on the teachings of the kingdom, which has to do with the Sermon on the Mount. Right around chapter 8 and going through most of 9 focuses on the works and the marvels of the kingdom, which has to do with those miracles of Jesus. Somewhere around chapter 10, we see the messengers of Jesus, messengers of the kingdom being sent out into the surrounding region. And to be honest, right around 11, I kind of trail off, so I'm going to return to this. But I was curious enough to compare it to some other more scholarly outlines and uh, was glad to see it somewhat matches. Not perfectly, but others have also noticed the kingdom plays a large part in Matthew's gospel. In picking up today, here we are in chapter 21, nearing the end of the gospel. And I think if we take last week's reading with today's and next week's, it would be safe to say that we are confronted with opposition to the kingdom at this point in the gospel, opposition to the kingdom. Jesus tells in this chapter three parables that function like shots fired against those who are opposing him and his work and his ministry in very strong stories parables. And it gets me thinking and wondering, what was so wrong with those on the receiving end of these words? What went wrong in their lives of faith for them to deserve such rebuke and correction? I mean, one of the common perceptions we have of Jesus is, isn't he just all about love and upbuilding? Well, he is love, the very definition of love, but taking these words seriously, we have to confront the fact that Jesus has some very strong words, and it's helpful to know who is on the receiving end of this parable. And that would be 
primarily the chief priests and the elders and the religious leaders of the people of Israel. We learn this in the context of this chapter a little earlier. And I want you to picture this. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He is surrounded by a group of religious leaders. Just to paint that picture a little more clearly, these are people who dress the part. In their public attire, they look like godly men. They talk the part. They supposedly act the part. People generally regard them for knowing things about God and being charged with the responsibility and the obligation to be in good standing with God. It's like Jesus being surrounded by a bunch of people in collars today. And listen to these words that Jesus has for them, first and foremost. They're very strong words of correction, words of rebuke. I want to look at some elements here of this parable because I think some of what went wrong is very, very basic. Ultimately, to the question, what's wrong, it would, it would require a great study. But I think that this parable gives us some hint, some indication of some very basic flaws in their thinking, in their system of belief, and I want to draw our attention to those. Jesus says, let me tell you another parable, because he's already told one against them. He says there was a householder. Now, immediately we learn that a householder is the rightful owner of everything on the property. So the householder is the owner. And this householder, or in another translation, master of a house, planted a vineyard. He did that. It's his vineyard. And then, to help guard it and put a boundary around it, he built a fence. And then he outfitted it with the proper tools necessary for a vineyard. He dug a wine press. And then he built a watchtower for its protection. And then, last, then he decided to entrust it, the vineyard, with tenants, with people who would be held responsible for overseeing and for managing it. And one of the fundamental flaws here in the parable that becomes apparent and that I think Jesus is making the connection to his day, and even more so it extends to ours, is that these tenants quickly forgot, grew dull and defiant to the fact that the householder owns everything. It's all his. None of it is actually theirs. They are tenants. They are charged with overseeing. They are stewards. And in the same way, Jesus is saying to those whom he is addressing, that's you. You don't own Israel. You're not free to do whatever you will in whatever way you like it without regard to God. 
You have to give an account. You have to answer to God, who is the rightful owner of everything. And how easy is it for us? Because this principle is not just to be directed at religious leaders, though it is here in this context, but it extends to everything, everyone, everywhere. Because ultimately, everything, everything is owned by God. It's all his. Every blade of grass that your residence rests on is his. Or stone, given we're in Boston. Every thread on your back, he made it. The sun, the moon, the stars, the heavens, the land, everything is ultimately God's. And we are stewards. We've been chosen by him in certain various ways and entrusted with overseeing certain things. But it's not ours to do with however we want, apart from regard to the rightful owner, who is God. I think they went astray here. They forgot that fundamental fact. Secondly, the tenants of the vineyard grew to treasure, to value, to love the vineyard over and against their relationship with the owner of the vineyard. They loved the grapes more than ultimately the giver of those grapes in their care. How easy and how, how easy is it for us to succumb to the same, to fall in love with God's things over God himself? When that happens, we are disordered. We are out of order. For we are called to love God first and foremost above everything. And in fact, Scripture says... When God is first, everything else will come in its due time. You don't really need anything else beyond God. He will give all the good things that you need. But we have to have a right order to this and not value the vineyard or our vineyards, whatever that looks like, over God. And thirdly and lastly, these tenants seemed to grow neglectful and forgetful of the fact that the householder would come, that he would in fact return. And we see some indication, some hints of this, as the householder sent servants to reap some of the fruit of the land and eventually sent his own son. And because of the state of the tenant's heart, they rejected them, and they weren't ready. For whatever reason, they thought that they would be able to get away with this. Every week we confess as a doctrine of faith in our belief, and we'll do it in a little bit, that we believe that he, Jesus, the Son of God, will in fact 
come again to judge the living and the dead. And the question for us is, do we believe that? And do we not just believe it, but how deeply do we believe it? And how does that belief impact our lives, what we're thinking, what we're doing with our possessions, what we're buying, our activities in life? Do we believe that he will come again and we will be held accountable? One of the questions that I think is very probing and helpful to ask of yourself and I should do this more myself, is can I offer this to God? Whatever you're doing, whatever you're thinking, whatever you're spending, anything and everything, can you offer it to God? Much like what we're doing now in this time of worship, can we offer this to God in good conscience for his glory? Let's do that throughout life, throughout Monday through Saturday, in all that we find ourselves wrapped up in, can I offer this activity to God? Will I be able to one day stand with him and honor him in those choices? Again, I would emphasize these are not complicating issue, complicated issues. These are very basic matters of faith. They're very fundamental when you think about it. But it's important to revisit the fundamentals and be sure that the foundation is without flaw there. Because when the foundation has fractures in it, there's problems down the road. In closing, not to raise any undue alarm, but I, was say, I saw a news story recently about the state of Ma- bridges in Massachusetts. You may know that Massachusetts is fourth on the list for worst condition of bridges. Don't worry, you only go over those every now and then, or under. But to my eye, to an untrained eye, they look fine. I can't tell any flaws. It requires someone skilled, an engineer, to get in there and to inspect, investigate, and find whether or not they are structurally stable or not. And there are people who do that, thankfully. But the same is true for our faith. It's very easy to project that all is well and good, that I'm a godly person, that I am listening and I'm sincere and all of these fundamental things are in place. It's another thing for them to actually be in good working order. It's very important that we have basic things like God owns everything. We ought to love God above everything, and he will come again for everything. It's very critical that we have those building blocks in place so that we don't suffer collapse down the road, so that we don't trip over this stone, or so that this stone doesn't fall upon us unawares. Amen.